Father God, you are the eternal creator, the beginning of all things and the end of all things. Through you, eternal life has been given to us, and it is in you and you alone that we have this life, and it is no accident. For you are sovereign over all things. From the beginning of our lives until the end, you measure each and every moment. You reign over all, and it is under your rule that we, as your people, willingly submit. For through your church, your rule is made visible to the world around us. For you have saved us and called us out of the world and put us into your kingdom. Father God, we confess that we do not recognize you as the ruler over all. We easily forget your reign in this world and we forget it in our lives. Too often we act as if you are not in charge. Fear, anxiety, uncertainty grip our lives. Your reign should give us confidence, but we are easily discouraged by the events of the world around us. Father, forgive us for not trusting in you. Forgive us for not being certain of your rule in this world. And it is in your forgiveness that we rest. For you see your people through your son, and it is in his life that we take comfort. We also thank you, Lord, this morning that we are not the only gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church in the Salem area. This morning, we thank you for Bethany Baptist Church and Pastor Tim Baker. Lord, we thank you for their commitment to preaching your word. Lord, and that they have a desire to be a healthy church. We pray that the elders there would pursue faithfulness as they look to shepherd your people well, and may they continue in gospel clarity for many years. This morning, Lord, we also pray for ourselves. We pray that the people among us who are suffering from chronic, undiagnosed pain, Lord, would have answers. Lord, from pain that, that hampers their everyday life, pain that reminds them of their mortality. For those who suffer endlessly and without answers, we pray that it would not be needless. We pray that they would take comfort in you. We pray that through their pain, they can understand you more deeply, that you reign on the throne and are in complete control. We ask that we as a church would be sympathetic to their pain that they are experiencing. Lord, may we have the right words to say and be silent when it is time. Give us wisdom to know how to encourage those who are silently suffering among us. Finally, Father, we pray that your word would challenge and equip us, cause us to persevere. Lord, through your eyes and through your word, may we rightly view our life and eternity. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Nick. You guys can be seated. And you can open up to Revelation chapter 1. I am thankful to be here amongst you today uh, to be able to read the Word of God together. I want to encourage you that this is more than just a traditional practice that we have in the Christian church. The work of the Spirit is to take what we gather together from the Word this morning and to apply it throughout the week and to apply it in our connections and relationships as a church. You'll notice that most of the New Testament churches... In fact, all of them are written to who? The church. Go ahead, say it. The church. Come on, wake up. We got coffee this morning. I know you're there, right? It's written to the church. And so this isn't just for you personally. This is for us as a church, right? And so part of what we do on Sunday mornings is we take the word of God and we apply it by the work of the Holy Spirit so that we as a church can grow together in sanctification. So if you're here this morning to hear a word specifically for you, well, you might hear it, but more importantly, it's a word for us as the church, because we collectively proclaim the glory of God. Amen? Now, if that's news for you, uh, I would encourage you and invite you to continue coming and, and learning and listening together with us, because you will hear that more and more as we go through Revelation. But this morning, I'm excited to be back in chapter 1, and we're going to be in verses 9 through 20. The Bible is full of commissions, commands from one party to another to carry out an action or a duty. And there's the commission in the garden, there's the commission to Abraham, there's the commission to Israel. All these various commissions 
lead them to do some kind of action. There's the Great Commission, with which we as Christians are very well acquainted. Now, in my estimation, though, the most impressive commissions are those found in the prophets. In these picturesque books of the Old Testament, the prophets are given visions that would probably cause you or I to fall down dead in shock because it did them. Now, we just heard one earlier from Isaiah chapter 6 in our Old Testament reading in which Isaiah was transported to the throne room of heaven and he's surrounded by angelic beasts and worshipful adoration and powerful sensory perceptions that all point to the fact that he was in the presence of the Almighty, the God and King of the universe, enthroned in glory. In the midst of that beautiful picture, this all-powerful God chooses to work through Isaiah, to work through incarnate, natural means to speak to his people. And he asks if anyone would be willing to go prophesy on his behalf. And Isaiah speaks up and answers that call. Now Isaiah does so to his own earthly detriment as he was later martyred for his message. Tradition says he was sawn in half. Doesn't sound comfortable, does it? And this was not uncommon for prophets. They were destined to be detested and hated in their own time. Now, speaking of the prophets and many others who endured suffering for the sake of proclaiming God's name, the author of Hebrews says this. He says, Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, speaking of Isaiah. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. They must have not heard the prosperity gospel. It was natural for those bringing an extraordinary, otherworldly message to expect that they would be hated, persecuted, slandered, and martyred. But they could do no other because they had been given a glimpse of the one who commissioned them. I long for this to get into the American church. Our missionary brothers and sisters, our brothers and sisters across the world, they know this because this is their life. But in the American church, the reason that we have adopted a prosperity gospel or even a partial prosperity gospel is because we think that we are special. But this is the truth. When you bring God's word, an extraordinary message, you can expect that you will be hated, persecuted, slandered, and martyred. But you can do no other because you have been given a glimpse of the one who commissions you, just as Isaiah had, the Lord God. And now in the days of John, in the book of Revelation that we're uh, focused on here this morning, it was the church's commission as a nation of priests and prophets, to go forth and proclaim the good news of God regardless of what they encountered in response. It is in this background of the Hebrew prophets and in this spirit of being commissioned by God himself that John the Apostle and Revelator is going to provide the vision that, is, uh, that has been given to him by Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ, in order to empower and encourage the church. And so in our text this morning, what we're going to see is John's vision of a commission from the glorified Jesus. That's the title for this morning, John's vision of a commission from the glorified Jesus. And that'll be taking place in verses 9 through 20, our text for this morning. Let's go ahead and read it. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining 
in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, I said in the introduction last week that to understand Revelation, we have to be well acquainted with the Old Testament. For those of you who do the work every year of reading your chronological Bible and you get to the point where you're in Numbers or in Deuteronomy and you're reading the begats and you're like, man, how will this pay off? This is how it'll pay off. Those of you that are acquainted with the Old Testament, this will immediately start making sense. Those of you that are not, I encourage you to start getting acquainted more with your Bible. Because this is so true this week. This book we have before us, while sitting in the New Testament as part epistle or letter to the church, it's also written in the apocalyptic genre, the language of the Old Testament prophets. And so the first thing that we see in the first three verses, as we overlap with our text last week, is that this is speaking apocalyptically. It's using symbolism. And so what we see here this morning is we see first John commissioned as a prophet. John commissioned as a prophet. We see this right in verses 9 through 11. Because the new fledgling Christian church was made up first and foremost of Jewish converts and Gentile proselytes, there would have been a rooted understanding of the Old Testament language of the prophets, even just in story or oral form. And so as we read through our text today, we will see echoes from many places, but primarily we're going to see Ezekiel and Daniel, and I'm going to have you turn there at various points today. So get ready to turn there in your Bible. If you don't know where they are, get acquainted with your table of contents at the front. This will make John's vision even more inspiring and weighty. Would you first go with me to the book of Ezekiel, chapters 1 and 2, so that we can read through the calling and commissioning of Ezekiel. And what you're going to find is that John is using very similar language. Ezekiel chapter 1 and 2. We're going to read through the commissioning of Ezekiel that gives us the background that tells us that John is being commissioned there in Revelation. Let's pick up in the midst of chapter 1, as Ezekiel is describing the scenery of the throne room of God and the vision he is having that pictures the glory of the Lord, starting in Ezekiel 1.22. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal, spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, there were wings. Uh, their wings were stretched out straight one toward another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings." And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. Notice that word likeness over and over. It's symbolic, okay? He's trying in his human senses to project what he actually saw, which was altogether extraordinary. And upward from what had the, uh, the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it, uh, as it were the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking, and he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me, and he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. 
The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, and, when it, and whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. Now we will return back to this again for imagery around the transmission of the visionary message he uses here in the rest of this chapter and into chapter 3, the idea of God giving him a scroll to devour, and this same imagery is going to be used in Revelation. John will use very similar uh, uh, language from Ezekiel 2 and 3 all throughout Revelation, and so you can get well acquainted with this section. But for now, we see some points of Ezekiel and how God manifested his vision using the very same words as Ezekiel. And this sets the stage for what John says in Revelation. Turn back there with me, if you would, and let's read again Revelation verses uh, 9 through 11 in chapter 1, and you're going to hear those same words. Look at verse 10. He says, I was in the Spirit. The Spirit is the one that helped him prophesy on the Lord's day. And I heard with me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then he continues on in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw the seven lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. Okay, so there's these same images, these same kind of uh, activity going on where he sees the throne room of God. He sees what's going on. Now, there are a number of points of similarity and dissimilarity between Ezekiel and John that give volume and color to the vision provided in Revelation. The first is that Ezekiel had been taken as a prisoner of war from Jerusalem, where the temple of Yahweh existed, and he was taken in exile to Babylon. And this was a horror for any God-fearing, God-honoring Jew like Ezekiel. To be taken into exile was to be taken away from the presence of the Lord and away from the ability to live out the sacrificial system which reconciled Israel when there was sin present. And so Ezekiel was receiving his vision as he sat in Babylon, exiled in tribulation and suffering. But part of what was so heartening to the exiled Jewish people was that this vision of God that Ezekiel was having portrayed God as having left the brick-and-mortar temple of the idolatrous Jews, and it had come to meet these faithful exiles right where they were at in their faithful exile, in, their midst, in the midst of their suffering. And it was in the latter portion of Ezekiel's vision that God would give him hope about a future time when he would redeem his people and give them his spirit and they would be sent into the world, worshiping him in a new temple that would never be destroyed. And so here we are in Revelation and John notes that he, like Ezekiel, is in exile. In fact, he's been exiled to the island of Patmos. Why? For proclaiming the story of God, the name of Christ the testimony of Jesus. And he's writing to the church that also sits in exile. How is that? Well, we as God's people are in exile among the kingdom of darkness, awaiting and desiring our true home where we can worship God in his true temple. Amen? But that's the good news that John is going to be bringing to the exiled and dispersed church across the Gentile world. They, we, the church, are the temple in which Christ dwells. Wherever his people assemble, Christ is there with us. That they and we, not some building made of stone and mortar, but the people of God is where the Spirit dwells. We are the temple of God where his glory dwells and where God is worshipped. And friends, this did not stop in the first century church. It's true for you and me and all of our brothers and sisters across time and geography. For it's in the midst of tribulation and suffering that we show that we are a kingdom of priests, patiently enduring evil, and in so doing, we are reigning with Christ. It's as if we have risen above the chaos of this kingdom of darkness. And it's in this work of loving one another and operating differently than the world operates, and in patiently and persistently proclaiming God's word and gospel, 
that we partner with the apostles like John in reigning with Christ. And Peter captures this idea wonderfully. I don't want you to turn there. You can write down the address and look at it later, but I'm going to just read to you from 1 Peter, and I want you to hear these same things come across, this idea that we are the temple, we are in exile, and that we are becoming the place where Jesus manifests himself in the midst of his people as they obey him. This is 1 Peter 2, 4 through 11. Just listen for a second. Peter says, As you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You, he says to the church, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, he says to the church, collectively, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So Revelation is picturing this idea that was already in the church that the people of God collectively are the bricks, the mortar that go together to build the temple in which Christ dwells. And as he reigns over his people and we respond in obedience to his rule, we are proclaiming to the world that he is savior and king who purchased us from the kingdom of darkness, gave us his his spirit to fight against our very flesh and that he is the one that reigns over us. Amen? Amen? That is what the church is. It is not about you. It's about the collective proclamation that Jesus is king by his people collectively obeying his reign. This is what's pictured in Revelation. Jesus is giving John a vision of the spiritual reality of this same truth, that the church is being formed into the temple that Ezekiel would picture as the hope of the world. Now, Ezekiel's job was to preach the word of God for the dual purpose that we just read of encouraging those who heard and obeyed and needed to endure and of convicting those who were rebellious and refused to obey God's law. His first and foremost mission was to bring conviction to Israel that they had broken their covenant faithfulness with God due to idolatry. Now, John's job was a bit different, and this is where they differ. You see, through the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement of Jesus, the work of God and salvation was finished. It was accomplished, and the new covenant with the Israel of God, the church, had been put in place. And so John is writing to encourage the true church there in Revelation. He will exhort, yes, but the main point of this book, of Revelation, is to encourage the church that Christ is with us even in exile and persecution. You might say, Hans, we're not in exile and persecution. Proclaim the name of Jesus and you'll see how quickly persecution comes. The reason that you're not feeling any heat is because you're probably not proclaiming the name of Jesus in your life. And so John, just like Ezekiel, was in the spirit as he was worshiping on the Lord's day, a simple statement that it was Sunday, the day in which all those across the world who honor Jesus as king join with one another in that same spirit, assembling as the people of God to declare to the world that our Christ has risen and is enthroned. And it was on this day that John heard a loud voice like a trumpet commissioning him to write and prophesy. The use of the imagery and sound of a trumpet exists all throughout the Old Testament. It speaks to the day that Israel met God at the foot of Mount Sinai. It comes from this scripture up on the screen, Exodus 19, 16 through 17. 
where there was thunders and lightnings and thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. It's what called the people to the mountain to receive the covenant that God had for them. It speaks throughout the days of the nation of Israel of a call to either worship or warfare. And both can be inferred here in Revelation as John is called with the uh, sound of a trumpet. For the church is to fight in suffering patiently and enduring persecution no matter where it finds itself. The trumpets signify a royal announcement from the king on high. And the voice spoke to John, telling him to write down the visions that he was seeing and was about to see, and to send them to the seven churches. Seven, the number of wholeness and perfection after the days of creation. And through these seven churches, God would be giving a message to the entirety of the church, across all geography, across all time. John was commissioned as a prophet to write to God's church, symbolized by these seven churches. But then John turns to see who is speaking. And he sees one who he has to put the words to us through symbolism because it's just so amazing and beautiful. And what he sees is that he is being commissioned by the Son of Man. The wording here is again reminiscent of Old Testament prophets. All throughout the book of Ezekiel, he's referred to as a son of man, meaning a human man. But there is a specific title, son of man, that is used in the Old Testament that we'll look at in just a moment. And it refers to the Lord, the one who is king above the nations. Now hearing a sound and then turning to see a vision, this will also occur many times in Revelation. It's very Old Testament prophet-like. And what he turns to see is this character behind the voice. But look at verse 12, what does he see first? There in Revelation 1, it says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Seven golden lampstands. Now we're told down in verse 20 that these seven golden lampstands stand for the seven churches that he's about to send the letter to. And the seven churches are the ones to which Revelation is addressed. Again, representing the global church and every local assembly of which the global church is made up across all time and space. In the midst of the lampstands, we're told in verse 13, it says, uh, there was one like a son of man. Immediately, our minds, for those of us that went through Daniel, should go back to that book and think, think through how it was used there. But before we go there, let's look a bit further. He's clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. Now, this language is hearkening back to a priest-like garment. He's being seen as a royal holy priest. That's the gold and that's the garment. A linen tunic and a priestly, uh, priestly wardrobe. But one that is made of gold signifying that he indeed is royal in this place. And then it says that this, was, this being had white hair like wool and snow signifying age and wisdom. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet of burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. That piece sounds a bit like Ezekiel. Friends, this figure is intended to be imposing and powerful. Do you ever wonder why the New Testament says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling? But Hans, Jesus is my homie. He's my friend. He always knows my heart. Guys, read the Bible. This is an imposing figure. He doesn't care what your heart says. The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. What he cares is that your heart is transformed into his. This is an imposing figure, and it's supposed to be. I know that that is anathema in the sensitive Pacific Northwest, but get over it. <laughs> but then the rest of what has been described should immediately link our brains back to two places in the visions of the prophet Daniel. Let's go ahead and look there now. Turn with me to Daniel. It should be the spot that's worn out in your Bible from when we went through it a few months ago. Go to Daniel 7. And remember, just for the sake of time, that the whole first eight verses is a vision of these four ghastly beasts that symbolize earthly kingdoms that rage against God's kingdom. And they end with this fourth beast that symbolizes the Roman Empire. 
in that vision during the time of that Roman Empire, that's the very place where Jesus came, lived, died, and was resurrected. Now something happens on the spiritual level there. These beasts are raging on earth. This beast of the Roman Empire would come. And then it says, look at Daniel 7, starting in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. You're going to see the same imagery in Revelation. And I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like, get ready for it, a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me, and I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Can I get an amen? Amen. All of a sudden, John's intent in Revelation becomes clear, doesn't it? The figure that John sees is Jesus Christ, seen in the fullness of his deity as both the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. John is declaring that in Jesus' crucifixion and subsequent resurrection from the dead, Jesus defeated Satan, death and hell, and the kingdom of darkness and proved himself victorious. And as a result of his work in redeeming us from sin, he was given an authority and a throne to rule over a people from every nation and tribe and tongue. And that kingdom, the one in which the citizens of heaven obey Christ's rule, that kingdom will not be destroyed. But look again at verses 25 through 27. He shall speak words against the Most High. There will come one who will speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. This is speaking of persecution backed by the enemy of God, the adversary, Satan himself. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away and be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Those same saints, it says, would be given into the hand of an oppressor that backed the evil earthly kingdoms in which we exist for a set period of time what I would submit to you is the church age that we exist in. And yet his kingdom and dominion would slowly be consumed and destroyed. How do we say that when we see all this evil raging around us? Well, remember, friends, the gospel that's going throughout the world by the proclamation of the church, it is picking people out of the kingdom of darkness. It is pillaging Satan's kingdom and bringing people into the kingdom of God. And this will eventually result in the fullness of the kingdom of the Son of Man and God Most High prevailing for all eternity. Friends, this describes the work of Christ and the inaugurated and consummated kingdom of God coming through the church age. Upon crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus was inaugurated as king. When he ascended into the clouds in Acts 1, he was presented to the Ancient of Days, God Almighty, the Father, and was given a throne over his people, the church. And during this church age that has existed for these 2,000 years and will continue until Christ says enough, two things are going on. First, the dominion of Satan, the kingdom of darkness, is being slowly but surely pillaged and destroyed. It often doesn't seem that way to our earthly senses, but the power of the gospel is causing Satan to rage 
that some of those he has enslaved in sin are being saved and redeemed by the power of the blood of Christ. And so persecution and slander and martyrdom are happening as his rage overflows into this world through the kingdoms and the people that are his. Now the paradox of the church age that Revelation is presenting is that in the midst of this trial and suffering, we are actually victorious. We are indeed the people of Jesus, the one who conquered sin and death through the defeat of the cross. And so John the Revelator sees the victorious Jesus that reigns among the bright witness of his kingdom of saints. Are you with me? Are you getting this picture? Jesus is right there in the midst of the brightness of his saints as they proclaim his testimony. Now remember that in our text from Revelation, there was a mixture of this one who looked like the Son of Man, and yet the same individual was pictured with white hair like wool. The one pictured here in Daniel is the Ancient of Days. There's two separate individuals. Now it's important that you and I understand that what John saw in the vision was not the literal resurrected and glorified body of Jesus Christ as it exists at the right hand of the Father. When you see Jesus, in other words, in a literal sense, he's not going to have campfires in his eyes, right? This is symbolic. But what he is seeing is the fullness symbolically of who Jesus is. He is the crucified Messiah. He is the enthroned king. He is the great high priest who has once for all time provided a sacrifice that cleanses us from our sin. He is God. He is the ancient of days without beginning or end. He is the king of the universe. He is God Almighty. That's who he sees. Now turn with me a little bit further in Daniel to Daniel chapter 10. Can you tell I love this vision? Daniel 10. We as the church should love this vision. Daniel 10 too. This is Daniel capturing another vision. And this is the vision of the one who brings him. The vision of how the, the uh, kingdoms of the earth will eventually be done away with. And look at how he pictures this messenger in Daniel 2 through 9. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, nor meat, or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen. Does it sound familiar? With a belt of fine gold. It wasn't a sash, but a belt. From Uphaz, around his waist, his body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound familiar? Yes. All right, cool. You're with me. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Sound familiar? Yes. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision for the men who were with me, did not see the vision, but great trembling fell upon them and they fled to hide themselves. Guys, does this sound like some dude floating along the ground in Birkenstocks and a toga? <laughs> so I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. This vision is of one who will give Daniel this vision of what happens in the kingdoms of the world and how God will be victorious. Look at his description specifically in verses 5 through 6. It matches the character of the vision uh, in, in Revelation. In Daniel, the vision of this glorified being uh, was about to give, uh, that this being was about to give, caused Daniel to fall on the ground in fear and angst. Now notice with me, 1019, what he says to him, very similar to what the being says in Revelation. 1019, and he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. Is this not our Lord? An imposing figure who causes us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling and yet condescended to us to say, I love you. You are mine. What a beautiful father that I know perfectly that if I disobey him in his justice, he will discipline me. And yet, his hands are hands of gentle love to which I can go any time I need him. Jesus is God, and he is a perfect good God. What an amazing picture. 
Through the picture of this same being, John is communicating to the church in Revelation that Jesus Christ, who is God, is standing with them in the fire of suffering and trial. He is in the furnace with the church, standing amongst us even as God stood with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the image of an angel. Jesus was not some failed militant political zealot or rabbi. Jesus was God himself. He does not stand far off while his church wrestles against spiritual powers of wickedness and earthly persecution. He's right in our midst. He's not a God who dismisses the sin that encompasses us. He is a righteous judge who has fire in his eyes to purify the world and redeem it in fullness once again. The one who is commissioning John to prophesy to the church is the very same son of man who established a kingdom that will not be moved. And friends, this is not for some off distant event in the future. This is for right now. This is who Jesus is now. The son of man in Revelation. Go ahead and go back there in your Bibles. He then opens his right hand for John to see. And in his hand, he sees seven stars. What, pray tell, are these stars? Well, in verse 20, it tells us, it says, these seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, just as the lampstands are the seven churches. This imagery is also pulled directly from Daniel as well. I'll put it up on the screen. Speaking of the time when God's people will reign. He speaks in Daniel 12, 2 of this. He says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is speaking of resurrection and the judgment. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. These are God's saintly people. Now, this further fortifies the idea that we discussed last week that revelation is provided to the church by God for the purpose of proclaiming that in the church, he has fulfilled his promises to his people. How many of you are waiting for God's promises to come? He's already fulfilled them. Now, in the Middle Eastern vernacular, the right hand was a place of endearment and special protection. It was also a place that passed on authority. And so just as Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, these seven angelic representatives are in the right hand of the Son of Man. Now, much debate has occurred over these, who these angels of the churches are. Some have suggested that the Greek word angelos Uh, means simply messenger, so it could be the pastors of the churches, or it could be an angel who's a messenger to the churches. But these ideas are are pretty new in existence, um, and especially the idea that it could be the pastors. This is something that has grown up in Western culture. But if we look at chapters 2 and 3 that we're going to begin going through next week, we're going to see that the letter to each church is written first to an angel, but then the content of those letters is to the body of the church. So because of this, we come to a different conclusion, and the best guess for who these stars are is actually that the lampstands represent the churches on the earthly plane as they spread the light of the gospel, and the angels represent each church's authority within the spiritual realm. And this is indeed a mystery. It doesn't make sense to our brains. The Son of Man holds the churches in his hand, and the Son of Man also has a sharp two-edged sword that proceeds from his mouth. And this is the same imagery used by the author of Hebrews to describe the word of God that can cut through separating flesh from spirit, bringing judgment upon our rebellion. This imagery will be used three more times in Revelation where we'll look at it a bit more in depth. His face also shines like the sun. You can see that at the end of verse 16 there, a reference to what occurred on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was not a mere reflection of the light, but the full strength of the sun itself. Another clear statement of Christ's divinity. And so we see that the one who has commissioned John to provide encouragement to the church and to reveal the true nature of the spiritual warfare in which we are engaged is God himself. Jesus is God. And so it's no wonder that John falls at his feet in fear, just as the Old Testament prophets that went before him, just as you and I 
would, and will. I wonder, Mission Fellowship, if we view Jesus correctly. For if we viewed him in the same awesome, powerful, and commanding way as John has, I believe we would each flee sin and pursue righteousness to a much greater degree. In Revelation, we are given the truth that Jesus is no longer the lowly rabbi riding on a donkey. He is now the conquering king, engaging in warfare alongside those who are truly his. And he is ready to judge sin and rebellion with all the power of heaven. Friends, do you need to adjust your view of Jesus this morning? Friends, Jesus is not safe. He does not exist for your kingdom and your comfort. But he is good. He is just. He is powerful. And he is oh so faithful to those who surrender to him as Lord. Brothers and sisters, do you need to adjust your view of Jesus this morning? Well, let's see what commission Jesus will give John. In the last section this morning, what we'll see is John commissioned to call the church to conquer. John commissioned to call the church to conquer in verses 17 through 20. And this feeds chapters 2 and 3, and that's why we're speaking of it here as he begins the work that will flow into chapters 2 and 3. This vision isn't detached, but it actually leads into what we will be learning in chapters 2 and 3 in the letters to the churches. Like every prophet before him, John does the appropriate thing that cannot be helped when in the presence of the Almighty God, he falls down on his face as though dead. And this is a logical response. We, as I've said, need to recover this a bit to see the Lord through this lens, to see our sin through this lens, to see the church whom Christ has purchased with his own blood through this lens, a lens of reverence and submission. But that reverence is only part of what revelation is imparting to the church. In this vision, Christ lays his right hand onto John and says, notice, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. He says, I died, and behold, I live forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So write, therefore, the things that you have seen, which means the vision thus far, and those that are to take place after this, which means the visions that John will receive in chapters 2 and 3 and later. Now let's break this down. To us who are immersed in the theology that Jesus is God, it is part of our theology of the Trinity, we almost want to move quickly past this. But for the first century church, who is still figuring out this idea that Jesus is God, these folks were not the majority. They were not part of the natural culture of the society around them. And they were facing persecution at the hands of the Romans. For them, this was a massively important reminder. You see, even though your senses and maybe your situation tells you that God is not in control as it would have for them, that he is not sovereign, guys, this is not truth. God is sovereign even over the most chaotic of times and most rebellious of peoples. That is why he can say to the church across all time and space, and he can say to you and I, fear not. Now you might say in this weird time of 2021, how can he say that? How can he tell us, fear not? Friends, because he is sovereign. He's already defeated death. So we don't even have sickness and death to fear if we are his people. His will is being worked out for his glory and our good. And so our participation is to trust him in that. No matter what our feelings or our senses say, he is good and his kingdom endures forever. And friends, the worst thing on this earth that will happen to us is that we will die, every one of us, and then glory. He's already conquered it. Now this phrase of first and last, alpha and omega, is one claimed only by God Almighty. We saw this last week in Isaiah 44, 6, as one of many different scriptures that speak of this. I am the first, I am the last, besides me there is no God. But not only is this God, this is God Almighty who stepped into human flesh in the incarnation of Jesus of Nazareth. He died, he says. I died, he says. 
He died murdered on the cross of Calvary at the hands of the Romans and the Jewish leaders. But three days later, he rose from the grave, proving his death had been successful as the atonement that joined us with the Father now and forever defeated death and sin. Friends, he will never die again. And those that put their faith and trust in him as Savior, Lord, and King, we have nothing to fear, not even death itself. For the second death of eternal punishment has no reign over us. We too will resurrect to new life after death. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you have everything to fear, including eternal death and torment. Turn to him, give your life to him, submit to him, and you will have nothing to fear. The Son of Man bases his identity on the fact that he is indeed God eternal, become flesh, dead, and resurrected. But then there is more, he says, and this is where he begins to connect to the fact that he dwells amongst his church, and we'll see this again in chapters 2 and 3 in great detail. He has given us, his church, his own authority as earthly ambassadors of his heavenly kingdom. Because of his victory over death in resurrection, he has the authority over the abode of the dead, Hades, and even death itself. He says, I have the key to these. The very enemies that invaded God's good world at the original sin of our first father and mother. Because of Jesus' redemptive work, he has been given the keys, a symbol for authority, even over death itself. For those of us acquainted with the words of Jesus in the gospel according to Matthew, these words are vaguely familiar. For in Matthew 16 and 18, this same symbolism of keys is also used. To discuss keys is to speak of authority the authority to legislate and make binding decisions on behalf of the kingdom. And in the Gospel of Matthew, these keys are to the kingdom, not to death and Hades, but to the kingdom, as the local church is given the authority to act out in an incarnate way the authority of Christ in the life of a believer. Matthew 16, 19, it says this, I will give you, this is Jesus saying this to Peter and the apostles, to hand on down through the church, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Matthew 16, 19. Then in Matthew 18, this same language is used to discuss the carrying out of church discipline for the purpose of restoration, that the church was to enact the authority of God, the God that we say we submit to and that is Lord over our lives. And the church is to carry that out in his authority. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Friends, this is why I say, if you are not submitted to a church, you need to stop lying to yourself and saying you're submitted to the Lord. You're not. To be submitted to the Lord is to be submitted to his church. As John uses the same language in Revelation, he's trying to get the church to see that Jesus, the one in the vision telling John to write to the churches, is indeed the authority over the kingdom of heaven. And even more importantly, he is the one victorious over death and hell. And so he alone can do the work of plundering the kingdom of darkness and drawing men and women into his kingdom by his grace, by his grace alone, through faith alone. Paul speaks of this constantly throughout his letters, that Jesus is the one who had victory over these enemies of darkness as he plundered that kingdom. This is Colossians 2, 13 through 15. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Friends, as Christians, we don't wait for victory. We operate from it because it's already been done. What compassion what care and grace and mercy that the God of the universe would condescend to us, die for us, granting us forgiveness of our sins and plunder us against our rebellious will from enslavement to sin and death and bring us to himself. And what love that he would then dwell amongst us by his spirit and tend to us as a shepherd does his sheep or as a priest does his lampstands so that we might shine brightly in a dark world. Now, in Revelation, he speaks of the church as these lampstands, and we could do a whole other study 
on the fact that this imagery comes from Zechariah. I won't bore you with that this morning. If you want to look it up, it's in Zechariah chapter 4. But this idea of the lamps signifying and standing for the temple of God is used symbolically in the Old Testament. Now in Revelation, John uses similar language, that the seven lampstands to symbolize the fullness of the new covenant temple of God, the very church itself. For it is the church and the members of the church that are to be the light that shines in a dark world. Friends, this does not speak of being nice. It speaks of proclaiming the testimony that Jesus is king, and if you do not submit to him, you will be submitted to judgment. So many Christians have bought into this idea that to shine the light of Jesus is to be nice. That is not what it's talking about. For it's in the church and the members of the church that are to be the light that shines in the dark world, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And yes, we teach our children that this means obey your parents and be kind, good, moral people. But friends, the reality of the light is that we are a reflection of the truth of God, the one whose face shines like the sun in fullness. We're proclaiming the testimony of Jesus, that he died, that he resurrected, that he is king and he's coming in judgment. The people of God are to be the image bearers of the original light, the one whose face was shining in full strength. How is the church to perform this role? Well, this is what John will deliver in detail in chapters two and three in the individual letters. But for now, what we need to know is that the churches and we as the church are to be Christ-like and proclaim his goodness and gospel among a dark and destructive world that wants to silence and destroy us. Among the very persecution, martyrdom, and suffering that the first century church and the church long after has had to endure, we are to proclaim this testimony. Again, it is in showing Christ in the midst of that suffering that the church performs its role as evangelist and conquering Christ-bearers. Resurrection and victory doesn't come unless it is through death and suffering first. I have heard it stated from many Christians, Christ went through all the pain so that we don't have to. That is not biblical, just so you know. In fact, what is biblical, let's look at what Paul said in Colossians. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery uh, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed. Remember that revelation is the revealing. Revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Friends, we are filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He's not saying that there was something lacking in salvation. He's saying that those who are Christians will suffer the same way Christ did. We will not have to stand in judgment and face the second death in the same way as we would have before sin. But friends, on this earth, we will be persecuted. We will suffer because this is not our home. And so it was this message of endurance and suffering and persecution, not escape and earthly comfort, that John was imparting to the church. Friends, Revelation is not a story of how we escape suffering. It's a message of how to endure it. But how could they endure and how could we endure? How could this first century church continue in suffering and persecution and slander and martyrdom? How is the church to survive? By knowing the presence of Christ and relying upon his high priestly power given through the Spirit. For it was the priest's role in the temple to tend the lampstands. And where do we find Jesus here? In the midst of the lampstands. The priest was to be vigilant and was to know the state of the lamps and their fire. It was his role to light them, to clean them, to refill them with fresh oil and relight those that had gone out. And as we will see in chapters 2 and 3, Christ does these same things to his church and to the members within as he encourages, commends, exhorts, convicts, and cautions us. 
And as we obey and submit to his word, as we have ears to hear and eyes to see, we become more capable of being the very light we have been commissioned to be. Friend, you may not feel as though you are conquering in the drudgery of everyday life. You may not feel like you are victorious in the miraculously mundane. Your senses may tell you that, in fact, you today are losing. But remember that Christ is here amongst us. He is there with you in your pain and your frustration. He's with you in your heartache and your trauma and your stress. He's with you in the places where you don't even know how salvation might touch the pain. And in sticking close to Christ and enduring through the pain in staying faithful to him and to the church that he bought with his own blood, friend, you are already conquering the kingdom of darkness and you're conquering its desire to destroy you. And so beginning next week, once in each letter to each church, we will hear what reward awaits those who conquer those of us who endure the pain and chaos of the world around us, who endure the spiritual warfare that daily wages against Christ's obedient citizens outside the church and within the church. And your application, my dearest, faithful brothers and sisters, is to examine how you view Jesus, to see him in his resurrected, glorified splendor as Lord and King, and then by his spirit to stand firm in him in endurance, for he stands firm with you. And then to go forth into your daily life that is not separated from his kingship, shining as a lamp for all to see so that they might be drawn toward him. In our text today, John was commissioned as a prophet by the Son of Man, God himself, who died on our behalf and now lives. And he was commissioned to call the church to be a conquering people, despite its circumstances or trials. Let's act on our commission to do just that, to conquer through faithful endurance, no matter what comes against us. May the church hear what the Spirit has to say to it this morning.